Imagineer. Everyone, and welcome to the Hedgineer podcast, where we discuss hedge funds, prop trading shops, finance, the technology that is used behind the scenes, and interviewing the engineers that are building all of it, making it all happen. And I'm your host, Michael Watson. And today we're going to have close friend Lucas Rooney coming on. Uh, that is one of like the great young minds that I've had a chance to interact with that has worked really deep in the ag space, agriculture within commodities. Uh, now focusing more of his time in the equity space and originally met him when I was working uh, at Citadel several years ago. And so, Lucas, really excited to have you on the show, man. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. How's uh, the 85 Miami degree weather treating you compared to New York? Much better than 45 degrees and raining in New York. You can't beat it. Um, all right, so let's kick it off, man. Like You have one of the most unique backgrounds in how you eventually got into the hedge fund space, especially on the investment side. Um, I love listening to it. Could you kind of like just walk us through how you ended up being an ag trader um, at Citadel at such a, a young age? Yeah, for sure. It definitely wasn't preordained. I had a pretty non-linear path getting here. Uh, certainly pretty non-traditional. So I actually didn't finish high school, kind of ended it when I was like 16 years old, living in Ohio at the time. Spent the next guess, six years kind of traveling around, working odd jobs, ended up guiding wilderness trips for a number of years. So I lived in Olympia, Washington, working on a gooey duck farm, Louisiana, doing landscaping and some tree work. Uh, ended up guiding canoe trips in Canada, mountain climbing and backpacking in Montana and Wyoming. Uh, then in 2017, I was guiding a canoe trip in Canada and uh, there was an older guy that I was guiding with. There were three of us. It was me, him, and one of his sons. Uh, he and I became fairly close during that time. Uh, and it turned out he was a dean at Boston University. And he said, you know, Lucas, if you ever want to back to college, give me a call and I'll help you out and we can see what we can figure out. Um, I had met a woman that summer and was kind of like reconsidering the path that I was on. There's an expression in canoeing, you know, with regards to running rapids, it's easier to be in the big water and get out of it than to be out of the big water and get into it. And to me, that kind of representative of like, look, I, I could continue doing the guiding thing and try to live a normal life at like 30 or 35 or something, but it'd be a lot harder at that point um, rather than giving a more normal life a shot and then being readily able to go back to guiding and living kind of a non-traditional lifestyle if that's what I ended up wanting. Uh, so I gave him a call that October, November of 2017 and said, you know, Marty, what, what can we do? Like, how can we make this happen? And long story short, I ended up at UMass Amherst. I was there for two years. I studied math and statistics, uh, did a little bit of Chinese while I was there too. That was one of my favorite parts. Um, ended up interning for a company called Louis Dreyfus that summer. Uh, they're one of the big physical agricultural commodities trading shops. Uh, and at the end of that summer, there was this senior trader there who was kind of giving me the pitch on come to Dreyfus. Here's what the career track will look like. Here are the benefits. And he said something kind of just offhand. He was saying, you know, People will try to recruit you or hedge funds will try to recruit you two to three years into the junior trader program here, offer you more money. It'll be kind of sexy. And, you know, a lot of people take that route and they end up fired. The fund ends up failing or they kind of fizzle out. Uh, you know, coming to Dreyfus is a more kind of like safe path where you're almost guaranteed to be successful if you're good. Uh, and he said, except for Citadel, you get a call from Citadel, you go or something to that. I didn't even know what Citadel was at the time. and. Kind of, 
at the time I had no real notion of like hedge funds or finance or any of that stuff. I was pretty much an ignoramus. And so I went online, I looked at their like career portal or whatever. Uh, they had two job postings, one for a commodities analyst and one for a commodities portfolio manager. And uh, in the physical commodities trading space, the traders are really the ones driving the ship and the analysts are kind of like in support, right? Um, it was less about, less about seniority than it is at hedge funds. So I submitted an application for the portfolio manager role. I said, I don't want to be supporting, I want to be trading. Uh, not realizing that no 23-year-old is a portfolio manager at, at, at any hedge fund, let alone Citadel. Um, and so I ended up getting an email from HR. Thankfully, they skimmed over the fact that I had applied for a portfolio manager role and didn't shame me for it too much. Uh, and they said, you know, the head of the agriculture trading team wants to chat with you. He and I had a Zoom call. We talked about work I had done at Dreyfus, thoughts on markets overall, some of my background. I didn't give him the full story at the time. But, uh, and we talked about books, honestly, that we were reading for like half the call probably. Uh, we ended up chatting for like two hours. Long story short, they ended up making me an offer uh, with no clear mandate at the time. They were building a new team. Uh, there had been some turnover kind of in the last six months and they were trying to expand the domains within agriculture that they were trading. So I had no idea what I was going to be doing. Uh, and when I started, they pointed me at livestock and said, go figure this out. We don't know how this works. Not done a lot of it in the past. Go figure this out. Here's kind of some consultants that can help you. Here's some data sets that we kind of know exist. Good luck. Uh, so took that and ran with it after about a year, ended up adding on biofuels to coverage, um, doing a lot of analysis and trading strategy, building out models, infrastructure, stuff like that. And yeah, that's kind of the history. Awesome, man. And one of the things that I think was unique about you is that you started all of your analytics and modeling writing code in Python, opposed to doing a lot of it with an Excel. And that was kind of a time when there was this transition happening in, in some of the space where people are just starting to do everything in Python programmatically, systematically, opposed to a framework that was all within Excel, a little bit more manual. And so it allows you to think about problems in a slightly different way. How did you adapt to doing all this modeling in code opposed to like your statistics background that may have as much exposure to that? So I had the benefit of not actually really knowing how to use Excel. So I was in a position where like I had to learn some, you know, vector for processing information, right? Uh, and it was definitely a sink or swim environment. And so I had no choice. I had to learn how to write Python code. And coming from a math and statistics background, I think, you know, I already had some of the like lexicon of how to structure logic, right? And that really at the end of the day is what code is. It's just a syntax around structured logic. Uh, so I think that there wasn't much adaptation because I didn't know anything else. Uh, and it was really just a process of learning that syntax. Uh, and I figured out how to Google the right things and look at Stack Overflow or whatever and kind of figured it out as I went. So, and you work with some other people that, across sectors that are using, they're not writing as much code, right? Like they, they don't think as systematically on how they process information, be able to translate it into insight and then use that for a, a given strategy. Do you think that having that just native ability to do your own development, not have a, to translate that to a developer is a differentiator for you at this point? For sure. I think it was certainly a differentiator to start and now continues to be in maybe a slightly different way. But starting out, I think most junior people in any role in finance are kind of, they're like information producers, right? They're taking 
research reports, data, all these different things, and putting them together, kind of coming up with some more distilled data set, giving it to the person above them, maybe with some narrative structure and kind of passing it off. And that's such a labor-intensive process when you don't have automated systems around that, that they don't really have time to sit around and think about the big picture, think about what the data is actually really telling them, and reflect on kind of like the world that the data paints a picture of. And so when you are an ag trader, you're thinking about just the agricultural markets in general, specifically in this case, like uh, hogs and cattle. For people that aren't familiar with that space, what are the narratives? What are the stories that you're trying to understand to get a better picture of what the, the market's going to do? Yeah, I would say, you know, livestock or biofuels or really any commodity kind of follows the same structure of what you care about, right? At the end of the day, commodities trading is about a supply and demand balance sheet. How much is getting produced and at what time and where? How much is being demanded or consumed at what time and where? And so what you're really trying to do with the quantitative models and all these things is come up with a balance sheet that just kind of says, hey, we have too much of this thing here and too little of this thing here. Price has some function to move that product from where there's a glut to where there's a, a deficiency, right? Uh, whether that's geographically or through time or rationing or buying demand or buying production uh, or rationing production to kind of solve the balance sheet, quote unquote. Um, I think commodities are a very pure market in that sense. Like, there's a lot of noise on the path there because you're trading futures, right? So we're sitting here today, middle of February. We might be talking about trading corn in December. There's a lot of stuff that can happen between now and then. But at the end of the day, come December, the futures price has to converge to the cash price of the good. And the cash price of the good is established by a bunch of people trading it based on supply and demand. And so... I was I was surprised when I realized how much of commodities is focused on just an S&D curve and going really deep in understanding the supply side, going really deep in understanding the demand side and finding what is the market clearing price at which those two will clear. And I always was expecting there's there must be something beyond what you might learn in a undergraduate economics course that's underpinning it which is true there you could go really deep on it but a lot of the things that you might learn in a econ 101 or an econ 102 class within college is fundamental to the way that you can think about commodities you're now starting to spend a little bit more of your time in the equity space how do you compare and contrast the two different markets the similarities and sometimes the differences yeah, so I'm definitely still learning in the equity space. I don't come from any sort of finance background at all. So it's it's pretty new to me still. But I would say the difference is really kind of what you're talking about with economics 101 or 102 and commodities, where there's a you know price that clears supply and demand versus in equities where there's many more variables going on. There's a lot more noise injected in the system. There's also many more participants. Uh, there's many more things that go into kind of what drives price day to day. Um, whereas commodities, it's fundamental inputs, equities, any range of inputs, right? From rates to algos to, you know, hedge fund positioning and flows, all those things can kind of drive price. And so there's a lot more noise in the behavior of any given asset. Now, there's still plenty of noise in commodities, but at the end of the day, it's noise that's kind of oscillating around the fair value of the information that you have gotten to date. So I think there is more price efficiency, so to speak, in the commodity space. But that's really a function of just 
the fact that commodities have to converge to a price at some given point in time, right? Whereas equities, you're kind of trading some ethereal notion of the future value of the company. Mm-hmm. Well, with equities, in my experience, it is a grind. There, like you were saying, there's a lot of participants out there. There's also a lot of liquidity. There's also a lot of transparency. Like there's requirements for disclosures if you're a publicly traded company that everyone gets access to, generally speaking, around the exact same point in time. And so that transparency and information is pretty democratized within equity. Commodities on the other side, there's a little bit more just asymmetry going on and there's less participants. The opportunity to find alpha and the opportunity to find your edge in commodities, in my experience, is probably a little bit easier than it is within equity markets. But the advantage with equity markets is that you have a tremendous amount of liquidity. So when you do have edge, your ability to exploit that can oftentimes be much larger. Um, But there's also this interdependency between commodities, equities, rates, currencies, where commodities are the inputs to a business that's going to convert that into something of value, drive cash flows into the business, and then potentially borrow to be able to increase the growth of the company within credit markets. And they pay for that with a currency that is issued by a government. So this relationship between different asset classes within the financial system creates a really interesting dynamic when you can start trading cross asset class. I'm seeing right now the potential for LLMs and AIs that are effectively able to ingest a holistic perspective of the market from various different sources and expose that to a discretionary manager in a way that allows them to very quickly have the most important information surface to them. As long as the AI is trained in a very specific way with a specific use case. Do you think that you can take technology one level further using some of these LLMs to be able to help a discretionary manager potentially think through that holistic picture? Not being any sort of expert on LLMs or AI, but having some superficial understanding where I would imagine there being some value you know, or it's more readily imaginable that there is value is, say, taking industrials equities trader, right? They might care about the price of steel, the price of aluminum, um, you know, factory run times, the price of natural gas, things like that, where they're not necessarily an expert in those things. I mean, it's possible that they could be, and that's why they're trading industrials, but they're not necessarily an expert in those things. And so, you know, if you already have this process that tells you kind of everything that you need to know about those companies operating models and management teams and profit and all these different things. But you have this kind of blind spot in, say, the commodities market, uh, the commodities that are inputs to those companies. You know, that's obviously a risk point. Um, And so I think, you know, the ability to get some holistic view, even if it's not perfect, even if there's, you know, call it a 75th percentile uh, type of representative information set about those markets, that's something that you would need one of two things to otherwise get. You would either need to have people in your network that understand that stuff really well, and network can be your personal network or it could be a bureaucratic network, right? If you're at a big multi-manager, you have the benefit of potentially being able to talk to a commodities trading team that might cover those things. 
Um, so either that or you would need to expend more of your time or have more people working for you covering those things. And that I mean, biggest constraint that many of us have in all of our lives is time, right? And hiring new people isn't always necessarily the most profitable uh, kind of decision if you already are managing a decent sized team. Uh, and if you're constrained by, you know, the profitability and alpha of your strategies, right? And so I think that kind of getting into this space of like cross-asset understanding is probably really where a lot of that stuff, I could imagine a world where that has a lot of value. And I, I actually completely agree with that. The question is, is how effective can that model be to be able to surface the relevant information to an investor without having it go completely off track and giving you something that actually could be dangerous in terms of a perspective or an insight that's just not true. Um, when I'm looking at the space right now, I see prompt engineering as a potentially very important process and skill for a multi-manager or a investment firm that's trying to distill this unique insight into a model itself. And it, that idea is even further like ingrained in me after seeing how Microsoft was training their AI over the, the last week. People were able to reverse engineer the prop engineers that were used for it. And you realize, one, there's a lot of problems with it. But if Microsoft feels as though there's enough potential just to train a GPT-3-like model with prompt engineering, that if you were to do the exact same thing, but have the prompts be created by an expert in a given field and having multiple different experts starting to train the model with different SMEs, subject matter experts, for example, an associate in commodities, a sub associate within equities, an associate within rates, an associate within um, treasuries, an associate with uh, macro, it's already spending all of their time, like you're saying, in expertise on this, training one holistic model and then sharing that model within an organization so that everyone benefits from that potential efficiency and democratization of insight, that there's a huge differentiator. Um, and right now is, I think, the first time that we're really seeing that creating a model like that that could surface insight, crossed asset class, deep expertise, uh, and make it available in a consumable way, I think is, is possible. And that's one of the things that I'm really interested in going really deep on within Hedgineer is can we create a system, not that we create a model, but cre we create infrastructure and tools so that somebody like yourself would be able to enter in their insight. What is their perspective on the markets today? What is the insightful news that they're seeing? If you're seeing news, can you really quickly just select it and say, that's important, we want to train on it? That's actually a bad perspective, but at least flag that if you see something you think they're wrong. And being able to train a model as you're consuming information so that that IP and intelligence is instilled in something that an organization can access is, for me, the future. Before we get to that world, though, where we're all using some magical black box AI and it tells us everything that we need to know, there's a lot of steps that need to happen before that. And some of that is enabling investors to access, process, and use information faster, and also getting the people that have those skill sets, developers, engineers, better understanding of what does the investment process look like. So either 
somewhere along that line, the two skills need to converge. You seem to be kind of like at the forefront of that. And so I'm kind of curious about your perspective of how do you see this convergence of investment insight, software engineering, and math converging on uh, a process before we get to this AI world? For sure. I think there's two kind of distinct elements, and I'll talk more about one for now. There is the human talent and capability element uh, insofar as we're talking about technologists learning more about markets, uh, investors learning more about technology. And then there's an organizational element, like how do we structure hedge funds or companies that are kind of doing investment asset managers? Um, how do we structure those companies to allow for more readil, uh, ready flow of information? Almost like a Rosetta Stone, right? Like how do we allow for technologists and investors to kind of speak the same language. And we can start thinking about human capital insofar as the pipeline that gives us human capital, right? So we can think about, you know, what are the college requirements that are behind, you know, the person that becomes a top software developer versus an investor? Um, I think that it's probably a more uh, immediate vector for the people that tend to become investors to learn more about technology and math, just insofar as, I think with econometrics and economics and finance, there's just more ready opportunity to throw some programming in and throw some quantitative processes in. And it already exists. I mean, people are writing R and MATLAB code in some of these classes and thinking about math more and learning regression and econometrics and all those things versus injecting this kind of more foreign notion of like, oh, you're taking some high level comp sci algorithms class. Do do these problems within the investment space like that. That seems less linear to me and kind of harder to inject. Um, but at the end of the day, what I think is really, really crucial is this notion of a common language, right? So you have to have the ability for people to communicate effectively with each other because otherwise you get exactly what you said. All of a sudden, you know, we get some fancy AI, LLM technology that can do all these things, but you just have a further disconnect between the skill set and the language of the investor and the tools and the people building the tools that are supported. And I think that that the only like solution in that world is more bureaucratic and organizational complexity, right? Just like what we see with large multi-managers, you have these huge tech organizations with tons of managers and product managers and then developers and data engineers and people behind them. And that gets very expensive, very inefficient and very hard to pivot and move around. And so I think that really the efficient solution probably comes in some form of, you know, the investors learning a lot more about technology, not just necessarily so they can build the tools themselves, because that's not necessarily the most efficient either. I mean, there are great investors who aren't necessarily going to be even decent technologists, but at the very least, so they can communicate more effectively with the people that are in technology roles that are working with them. And so again, it comes back to this notion of speed, right? Uh, not necessarily in the actual investment, but in the capital allocation investment process, which is to say, if I don't speak technology language, right, and I'm an investor, and I go to some technologist that's working for the company that I'm at, and I say, oh, this is this thing that I want to build that would make my process faster or better, or more broadly kind of able to ingest information. If I can't really describe that in technology terms, and the technologist doesn't understand the actual data inputs or the substance of the data and not just the structure of the data and doesn't understand the structure of the process, all of a sudden we have to iterate and it takes weeks and weeks and weeks or months and months and months. And you might not even get a very usable product at the end. Uh, and so I think that 
it's crucial to kind of decrease that iteration time and allow for kind of more ready symbiosis between those two things. Uh, and at, at the very base level, you know, having investors speak technology. You could solve the problem with bureaucracy or you could solve it with um, cross-functional teams. Well, because I think they happen contemporaneously. Mm -hmm. Like organizations develop like organically and contemporaneously with new technology. Totally. totally. Right? Look at the large multi-managers. The reason that you can have large multi-managers today versus the Paul Tudor Jones or whatever of 1980 is that you can process a ton more information across many, many more people, have many more smaller marginal alphas and put them together in a much more coherent way, right? You can run a real risk model systematically, minute to minute, second to second, day to day, in a way that like, like we're not doing in 1975 with Paul Tudor Jones reading, you know, the Wall Street Journal or whatever and wanting to short the Deutschmark yen because he had a feeling, right? Um, and I think that that is a distinct transition that's happened where, you know, and like the top people, the CIOs and the CEOs of these multi-managers have really capitalized on the contemporaneous transition of, you know, organizations that they kind of pioneered around the novel technologies and the instruments that they have to kind of capitalize. Because that technology is oftentimes used for instilling the IP that exists within the organization, within those teams, and being able to take it out of the wet CPU that is your brain and put it into something that is uh, permanent. It's going to always exist, whether you're here or you're not. And technology enables that instilling of IP into the institution. You could also solve some of like the technology problems opposed to in a bureaucratic way of creating an organization by having these cross-functional teams where you have an engineer sitting next to an investor professional, sitting next to a mathematician that collectively have all the skill sets that you need. And some firms do that really well, especially more on the prop trading side. How do you think about solving this separate distinct skill sets via bureaucratic organization versus a cross-functional team? So I think it's incredibly difficult to bring together, say, the three kind of archetypes, right? An investor, a quant, and a technologist, and get them to all speak the same language, kind of going back to the Rosetta Stone idea. And so you end up in a situation where it's almost organically leads to more bureaucratic complexity because you need a manager that can sit above them, that can kind of translate and make sure things aren't going off the rails uh, and kind of have a holistic higher level viewpoint. Uh, and that how you end up with large kind of weakly linked structures of organization. Um, so that is one version of a cross-functional team, right? Another version of a cross-functional team is having a collection of people with maybe different deep domain expertise but the ability to speak all of those languages so they can readily find the links between and find and build the links between their domain of expertise and the person next to them. Uh, and so I think that those are kind of the two different routes that an organization can take, right? Uh, and I think that as we see further development in the technological and quantitative skill of investors, it would make sense to me that that would be maybe more of the direction that we end up going. Uh, and certainly, you know, I think that there is a lot of like incremental value to be found in those kind of like points of intersection. And that's what was attractive to me about learning about the equity space, trying to get some exposure to the macro space is really starting to, you know, gain some understanding. Look, I'm never going to be the best, you know, financial modeler for Apple or Tesla or something, but I don't necessarily have to compete at somebody else's game. 
And that's kind of the idea. If we extrapolate that away from my interests and, and career into kind of organizations and how the industry develops, right? Uh, you know, it's fairly easy to imagine a world where, you know, people are very deep in one thing, but also have this kind of broader expertise too. I, there's some, uh, what is it, like the pie form of expertise or whatever, where you have one or two things where you're very deep, but also quite broad. Um, and that broadness really allows for the ability to establish the links, right? Because at the end of the day, those links are where I, I think that you can find marginal edge as someone new coming into the space or a new organization coming into the space. Because it's going to be very hard to beat the incumbent HFTs. It's going to be very, very hard to beat the incumbent multi-managers. They have a moat. They have the budget. They have the head start. I mean, it's, it's you know, incredibly difficult because there's huge economic incentive to be successful. And so to me, it's really this question of, okay, get them where they ain't. Uh, and there's no guarantee that that's a successful model, right? But uh, at least that is something where maybe you're optimizing for the potential to capitalize on shifts in the industry, uh, either as an individual or as a firm. And I think we can hit them where they ain't. That perspective is you can win with speed. Like that should be your advantage if you're trying to compete in this space in combination with having a specific domain expertise like you know something really well but you can do that you can do something very fast and that's where technology needs to be a differentiator it needs to be something that helps you move faster and if you're not able to move faster you already have the incumbents that are really good with distilling expertise they have a moat all right let's take our mind off of markets technology completely you have this really unique background where you were spent months doing wilderness expeditions where'd you go like what was the normal week in the life before you came into this finance world like uh so it varied a lot um it would depend on where i was what i who i was working for um you know or even like climatological stuff right like a day looks very very different when you're kind of like living and traveling in the woods if it's raining and there's a 45 mile an hour wind versus if it's sunny and 70 degrees and totally still um, so use an example. So when I was guiding in Montana, I mean, uh, many of the trips that I would guide would be during the colder weather seasons, uh, due to the fact that guiding canoe trips during the summer, because that's really canoe up north. Uh, otherwise there's ice, can't do anything. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we'd wake up at five, six o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, I would cook breakfast for the clients and, we would hit the road. Maybe we would talk about, you know, the plan for the day or whatever and maps together. And then we would start hiking. And that was pretty much, you know, the defining feature of, of every day is just kind of this deep routine uh, and kind of like meaningful monotony of uh, just kind of like engaging in the same task over and over again without the ability to control your environment or control your surroundings with the real variability coming completely exogenous. Uh, and I think that's something that like, is injects novelty into an otherwise really, really mundane thing, right? And that's why, like, living in society, you know, mundanity is much more painful because there's, like, it's so contrived and we have such, like, rigid structures around everything that if we have a routine and do the same thing day to day, it really is the same thing day to day. Uh, and we have this notion that, like, we can kind of control all of it and we try to, I think, in general, and that leads to kind of a lack of fulfillment or lack of meaning in the, mon uh, in the monotony. Uh, and so, you know, there would be moments of excitement kind of in this like boredom state or not necessarily boredom, but just kind of like a, a 
zen or like mindless flow state of just doing these same things over and over again. You know, climbing a mountain and you're kind of on the side of a cliff and you blow out a snowpack, you feel alive there for a moment for sure. You know, if there's a thunderstorm and you're in the middle of a 20 mile wide lake and you got to get to shore, otherwise you're going to get caught in lightning. That's definitely pretty exciting. Um, but also gives you a real appreciation of the fact that like random stuff can happen and there's real risk imbued in that randomness, right? How often are you getting back out into the woods? Now, uh, once or twice a year. So I have friends that I guided with in Canada where we'll go, you know, during COVID, we weren't able to cross the border. So we would go to the Boundary Waters, uh, which is Boundary Waters in Quetico Superior or Northern Minnesota. And then the Canadian side is the Quetico Superior. Uh, so we would do like, did like an eight and then a 10 day trip in 2020 and 2021. Uh, and then every year I go on a hunting trip out West with guys that I guided with in Montana and Wyoming. Uh, so we'll around the mountains chasing elk or deer or whatever for, uh, you know, four to six days. Awesome. Do, do you feel like you can get at least some of that exposure by doing a day hike or does it really take multiple days out in the wild in order to like do a full reset and clean out the cycle? Or can you just, for example, like go upstate or hit like a, a section of the Appalachian Trail a couple hours outside of the city in order to kind of like scratch that itch? I'll take what I can get at this point. I think, you know, a few years ago, I was more of a hardo about it. I would be like, oh, you know, if it's not a two week long wilderness trip where I don't see another human being and, you know, have to really rough it, I'm not interested. Now I'll, I'll take what I can get. Like a walk in Central Park is nice, right? Um, you know, life has definitely kind of evolved and developed in a way that it's less accessible for me to be totally disconnected from the world for a long period of time. But having those longer periods definitely is the more meaningful reset. Um, so that is something that I kind of think about a decent amount when I think about the calibration of my life going forward, for sure. Totally. And one of the things we were talking about is doing more creative endeavors. And for me, I see the Hedgineer podcast as an ability to explore that world of creativity. You said earlier that you were pretty interested in exploring that. Like, what does exploring creative endeavors for you look like this year? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing that comes to mind, not to talk about work, is really work. It's learning new stuff, kind of applying my interests and skill sets that brought me to markets from the stuff that I was doing before. Uh, originally, and applying them more broadly, learning different topics, learning different uh, kind of like strategies. Right now, I'm kind of focused more on probably technology and quantitative stuff than I was at the prior role. Um, it's more kind of like central to what I'm doing rather than just a utility. Um, you know, I, I want to engage in more things like this, say yes to things, right? Like have friends that want to, you know, do go to some poetry reading or go to some play, things like that, and just make a point of doing that and doing more initiating of those things. Uh, I've started writing a little bit, kind of some of the story of my life to date, um, you know, like 60 pages in or something like that. It's been, a, it's like a nice kind of cathartic and also like centering and kind of like refining experience of like really coming to understand like what is the actual, like what are the actual things that led me here? And how do I stay true to some of that as my life changes? Um, so I think reflecting more on that as now I'm, you know, three-ish years into kind of hedge fund world and it's more like normal and less novel to me. Um, so kind of just reconfiguring some of how I structure my life and engage my time outside of work to the fact that work is no longer this like exceptionally exciting novel thing all the time where I like can't believe that I'm here because, you know, I started my first job. I was like 
two years out of the woods or something like that, basically. And in fact, it guided a trip in the summer of 2018. So I wasn't even fully two years out of the woods. Like I had been on a two month canoe trip 17 months prior. Um, yeah. So doing more of those things, I think is kind of the defining thing for 2023 that I hope. Love that. And I, I, I love the diversity of experiences, exposures, and ideas that you surround yourself with. You can get inspiration oftentimes by something that you were not planning on getting inspired by, let alone even exposing yourself to poetry, theater, the arts, creating content, sharing ideas or conversations with people from a completely different background is, I think, where you get the most exposure to something that's going to flip a switch in the back of your mind. It's like, oh, I haven't thought about a problem in this way because I'm now thinking about information that I previously was not. I was not like putting into my mind. Love that. Another thing that you actually like touched on a little bit that it reminded me of, of something um, from a management perspective. And it was the general manager of the Chicago Cubs came in and spoke to us after they had won the World Series. And he said that players go through essentially five different phases throughout their career. They, they play long enough in the majors. And his job is to move players as quickly from a trough to a peak. Uh, the five different categories, generally speaking, are you're a rookie, you're new, you're super excited, and you're just glad to be there. The enthusiasm that you have is infectious around everyone around you, even if you're not necessarily the best person there. When you were saying, like, when you're new to the space, like, you're just excited to be there, and that enthusiasm is infectious. But then you go to stage two, and that's, oh, wow, these people are really smart. Do I deserve to be here? And then start questioning yourself. And if you remain in that second phase for too long, you're going to psych yourself out and not be able to move forward and have to pivot and do something else. But then that third phase is when you get there and you believe you deserve to be there. It's like, hey, I worked hard. I grinded. I'm capable. I can compete with these people. And a good manager tries to go get you from one to three and get out of two as quickly as possible. But you have to go through, th you have to go through two. But stage four is, hey, I just want to get paid. And I know I deserve to be here. Just throw money at me and I'll do whatever you want, but I just want to get paid. And like, I think most people go through that phase, whether it's in the hedge fund space or you're within major league sports. But five is when you transcend that and just, I want to win. And all of these other experiences I've had got me here and I want to be the best, both for myself, my family, my friends, and my team. I just want to win. Whatever that means to anyone else around me, um, it's not important. What matters to me, winning and what that looks like and just executing on it. And if you're a really good manager, you're trying to get people from one to three and then three to five. And I love that example. And it's always stuck with me after the last like five years. And it, it's resonated with me as well. So right now I'm just focusing on winning. I love that. Uh, and I think it's interesting you split it up into one to three and three to five. Because as you were talking about that, I wasn't, I've, I've not heard that exact kind of like framework before. But as you were talking about that, I was thinking of two kind of separate events occurring from one to three and from three to five. And from one to three, it's almost this like ego deflation experience right? Like the Dunning-Kruger effect or wherever where you, you, know, you start getting some experience and you think you're great. And then you have this kind of like humbling experience where you think you're you know, worse than you actually are. And then slowly you kind of converge to an accurate perspective on yourself. And 
the way I think of humility is just an accurate accounting of assets and deficits, right? So it's, it's not thinking I'm better than anybody else or worse than anybody else. It's just recognizing like, where are my skill sets and where do I fall short? And I might fall short in nine places and have skill in one and somebody else might, you know, have skill in nine places and fall short in one, but there's different weights to those different things and there's different utility for different people and different skills and all of that. And so that's kind of like the first process. And actually, I think like, not to go off topic, but the wilderness travel stuff effectively is this like ego deflation experience. And I, I, I really learned this uh, working for a rehab in Montana where you would have kind of two types of patients that would go into the woods. You would have people that delusionally thought they were awesome and tough and could do anything. And you had people that felt like they'd never accomplished anything in their life and would fail at anything that they tried and kind of were like meek and had given up. And almost without fail, you would see the person who delusionally thought they were fantastic and excellent and they maybe they lifted weights and were six foot two and whatever get knocked down because it's really hard. Uh, and it's not a physical process. It's a mental and emotional process. And it's a process of acceptance of the fact that there's stuff that's going to happen to you that you can't control and you just got to keep going. You don't have a choice, right? Uh, and then on the other hand, you would see the person who was meek and felt like they'd never accomplished anything, recognize the strength that they actually had because they just kept going. Uh, not without struggle necessarily, both struggled, but the person on the other side that we're talking about just kept going and at the end had accomplished something that 99.9% of them never had come anything close to before and felt this real sense of like pride uh, in their experience. And so if we think about the ego as the thing that kind of stratifies this like central line of humility, the one above and the one below kind of converge at that point as they have a deflating experience, right? And so I think that you know, when we talk about that kind of process in a career for a professional baseball player or whatever, one to three is this ego deflating experience. And then you almost get to this point of like ambivalence, right? Where you're, where you're saying like, well, I'm not better. I'm not worse. I have this talent. It's a skill. You know, there's opportunity cost of leaving it. You know, there's a lot of benefit to doing it. And, you know, I'm just going to do it and get paid whatever the fair wage is and, you know, continue on, Right. And there are people that stay there. I mean, it's not a guarantee that one gets out of there. Um, definitely know some older people that are kind of in that seat, and that's fine. And they find fulfillment in other things that they do in their life, uh, or they don't, but hopefully they do. Um, but really where I think the excited, like there's excitement in that ego deflating experience as you're learning more about yourself and your role in the world and what you're good at and maybe what you're bad at, but, you know, really coming to understand yourself in this context. And then the second point of excitement is exactly what you're talking about which is the winning piece, right? And when I think about winning, I don't necessarily think about like sitting alone in my basement and making the most money, right? Because doing that, I mean, maybe you're winning at the game of having a large number in a bank account, but is that really like winning at life as a whole? Um, a friend of mine likes to say like the, 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 the optimal job or a friend of ours actually likes to say the optimal job is, you know, one where you work on interesting problems with, interesting and compelling people, maybe even good friends, and you win. And I think that that is really where kind of the fulfillment ends up coming in. And we're social creatures and we want to do things, at least for me, in a social way. And if that means going out with friends for dinner or to work with a team on a common problem, trying to come up with a shared solution where everyone's contributing and grinding together, that is fulfillment. When that team can ultimately accomplish the shared goal. And whether it's going out to a dinner with a group of people you're close with or 
trying to come up with like a new framework to be able to understand something about the world to writing a piece of code. Like that teamwork is, I think, where for me, I get the most satisfaction from. For sure. And I think just briefly, like reflecting on, you know, myself and my own experience, like grappling with, uh, like I'm not motivated enough by money to just like execute on a task and get paid for it. I mean, obviously I care about money. It's a you know, base utility in the world that we live in. Um, but it's not like a sustaining thing for me, right? And I, I honestly, I don't think it is for most people. Um, there definitely are some for sure. But at the end of the day, like that causes me a little bit to like struggle kind of in a more cerebral existential way with the work that I do because it can be so much distilled down to executing on something for money. Uh, but that's all work, right? That's not specific to hedge funds or finance or tech or whatever. Um, that's true when you're cutting down trees or guiding a wilderness trip. Uh, it's about finding the like, in the substance of what you're doing more broadly. Um, and so I think that, you know, it remains to be seen whether that kind of calibration ends up being a net positive going forward or not. I mean, maybe the struggle with that says, you know, okay, this is not a sustainable thing and I got to find something else. Or maybe it does what it's done for me in the past, which is kind of like drive me into new domains and working on interesting things and finding out new things about myself and the world and passions and all of that. But, you know, what I do know is that like, it's imperative for me to remain kind of like faithful to those principles. The first principles, like we talk about it investing, the first principles of just like life that got me there um, to where I am. Thanks, Lucas. And I think that's a wrap. So thanks everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the Hedgineer podcast. I'm your host, Michael Watson. And if you want to learn more, check us out at hedgineer.io. And join me in Slack. It's where I'm working all day. Happy to answer any questions and collab with anyone that wants to work on some of this stuff. You can find that at hedgeneer.io slash Slack or follow us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, or Twitter. And hopefully you'll keep tuning in. Thanks for everyone for joining. Take care. Hedgeneer.